I had an epiphany while I was sitting there listening to see this testimony. All of a sudden, I realized I didn't have the microphone. So it magically appeared while we were praying. <laughs> I had a really good time in uh, Minnesota, in Minneapolis last weekend. There with Pastor James, with Joshua. We had a tremendous time of fellowshipping. We were there for the pastor's conference, John Piper's church. So it was a blessing time to hear John Piper preach. Saturday evening, and then hear other men as well at the conference preaching, and then we were able also to go to a Sovereign Grace Church, which if you're familiar with C.J. Mahaney, is uh, a minister he's involved with, and they're planting churches all over America and in other countries. It was a blessing to be there. And yet, and I say this with sincerity, this isn't just a, any fluff, but it was, it's such a desire to be here, and it's such a blessing to be here at Cornerstone Bible Church, and thinking this morning on the way down is that our time here is relatively short as God would lead us in His timing of the Czech Republic. And so again, I just want to praise God for all of you and just really again thank the Lord for bringing us here. And uh, it's such a blessing to be here. Could, uh, even as we're hearing the Word, you could even in your hearts just pray for Joshua. He's at Pillar Bible Church uh, preaching from the book of James. And you can also pray for uh, James and Serena and their families that are on vacation just to Get refreshed. James has been working so diligently, and uh, he's a man of God. He just needs time to be refreshed. Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 12. I'll just begin by asking some questions. You ever wonder what motivates people to do things they do? Why do grown men expend their entire hearts and souls and deliver their bodies over to be smashed and gnarled? All in the name of the Super Bowl. What would motivate a man to climb 3,000 feet of sheer rock without any ropes, without any safety equipment? What would motivate an 18-year-old Muslim to blow himself up in order to take the lives of others? Why would a mother take the lives of her three children? What would motivate another mother to defend her children against a bear with a shovel? What would motivate a man to run all day, all night, go without sleep, go without food, do push-ups on end just to be called a Navy SEAL? What would motivate a man to bore a hole in his trunk in order that that he could pull over and shoot people? What would motivate a man who never committed any sin nor was any deceit ever found in his mouth. What would motivate him to give his life for others? What would cause a movie star with riches and millions of dollars to go to impoverished countries and adopt children? And what would cause that same woman to commit immorality and to leave her husband and marry another man? What would cause a missionary to go to China to one village and spend his entire life preaching the gospel to people who never listened and never repented? What would cause 200 people to come Sunday after Sunday to hear the Word of God, to sing praises to the King, to cast themselves down, crying out for mercy, rejoicing with joy, What fuels a man to travel land and sea to preach the gospel, to preach the message of Joseph Smith, to preach the message of the Mormon church? What causes another man to travel the same distance and to preach the doctrine of the Jehovah's Witnesses? What causes another man to travel the same distance and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? What motivates people to do these things? I find the the question of what motivates people to be a fascinating question, don't you? What causes people to do these things? What motivates them? What fuels them? And so I want to ask you this morning, simply, what motivates you? What's your motivation to be here, to seek after Christ, to fellowship with one another? What motivates you when the rest of the world is still sleeping? When the rest of the world is preparing to watch television, when the rest of the world is waking up to play sports, when the rest of the world, their children are playing sports, after a hard 
week when you want to rest? What motivates you to come here to worship Christ? Motivations for such things are absolutely critical. And what I find incredible about our motivations is that we do things that Mormons do. Or we do things that Jehovah's Witnesses do. We do things that Buddhists do. And yet with a radically, absolutely, infinitely different motivation. And so I want to ask you this morning, what causes you to worship? Why do you worship? Today we're going to unfold living a life of worship. We're going to learn about the motivation of worship, the magnitude of worship, and the measure of worship, so that our worship might be pleasing to God. Romans chapter 12, verses 1-2 through reads, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. you see your outline there? Number one, we want to look at the motivation of worship this morning. The motivation of worship. That is what should be. What should be our motivation to worship? Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. And so Paul begins this section of Scripture with a therefore, with an urge, with an appeal to believers. And we always have to ask that question when we come to conjunctions like this. What is this therefore, therefore? And Paul actually tells us what this therefore, why he puts it here. He says after that, therefore I urge you by the mercies of God. And so Paul, apostle to the Gentiles, urges Christians, please exhorts, however you want to translate that phrase, but he wants to get our attention. And so I want to get your attention. If you missed this phrase, if you have been missing this phrase, if you missed this phrase this morning, or you continue in your Christian life to miss this phrase, then you're not a Christian. Because if you don't understand the motivation of why you worship Christ, then you miss the whole point. You may be a Jehovah's Witness in Christian garb. You may be a professing Christian in Muslim practice. Because motivation has everything to do with why and how we worship Christ. Because Apostle Paul tells us here that true worship is motivated by the mercy of God. You see that? True worship is motivated by the mercies of God. And so here we come across what is the third of the three most powerful therefores in the book of Romans. This therefore here, if you will, it just refers back to all that Paul has been preaching. Romans 1-11 through is really the great doctrines of salvation. And then we get to this therefore and he's going to progress through chapter 16, and he's going to apply those salvific doctrines. But he says, therefore, by the mercies of God, that is, the mercies of God that were expounded in chapters 1 through 11. And so I'd like to go back, flip back to chapter 8, to the second of the most pivotal therefores. And you'll see there, Paul says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. There's no judgment. There's no eternal punishment. There's no hell waiting for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so Paul says in chapter 12, Therefore, by the mercies of God, But then we have to ask the same question in chapter 8, verse 1. Why? He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But then we have to ask the same question. Why is it, why is it that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ? How is it that there is no judgment? And so we go back to the first. The first of the profound therefores. Chapter 5. You can flip to chapter 5, verse 1. Here again, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Having been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But then we have to ask again that question. What is this therefore, therefore? How is it that we're justified by faith? Faith in what? Well, I don't have time to preach all the way through chapters 1 through 3, obviously. And so I want to go to what I believe is the, the pivot, the pivotal scripture. Romans three twenty three through 25, you know it well. Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. Now look at that that word in verse 25. Propitiation. Important word. Don't be embarrassed if you don't know what it means. I had to look it up just to find out and make sure I got the definition right. Propitiation means an offering that turns away the wrath of God directed at sin. Propitiation means an offering that turns away the wrath of God directed at sin. It carries the basic idea of appeasement or satisfaction of a God's wrath. And I say a God's wrath because the idea of propitiation wasn't just unique to Christianity. It wasn't just unique to Judaism. But all the pagan religions had some sort of idea of a propitiation. Greek mythology really was built around this idea of propitiation. And their idea of gods was that the gods were somewhat... Psychotic's not the word, but out of control emotionally, unbalanced. You know, sometimes they're happy and sometimes they're sad. If your life's going well, it's because the gods are happy with you. If your life stinks, it's because the gods are mad for some reason. And so what you have to do as a believer is you have to offer up some sort of sacrifice to get the gods on good terms with you, to somehow please them so that they'll be happy with you. And so the idea for propitiation lies in oneself. It lies in what you do to make that God happy. You guys have heard the story before. I'll share the brief version of a missionary who was walking along the Ganges River in India. came across a woman who was weeping and he asked him, what's wrong? And she had just thrown her little child into the river. The baby flowed down the river, drowned, disappeared forever. And this woman, when she was asked why she did that, it was because she was trying to please the gods. Her life reeked. Her life was in shambles. It was horrible. And so she knew that she needed to offer up something to the gods to get them on the good side. Well, that kind of thinking to the Scripture, that kind of thinking to God is an abomination. Because the Scriptures make clear that there is nothing that you or I can do to make a propitiation before a holy God. There's nothing that we can do to make a propitiation before a holy God. And so, the Scriptures tell us here that God Himself displayed His Son publicly as a propitiation. So here's what's incredible. God is righteously and rightfully angry at sinners because of their sinfulness. And yet He knows that there's nothing that we can do to pay for our sins. And so in His incredible mercy, He sends His Son and He offers up His own Son as a propitiation. He offers up His own Son, Jesus Christ, to appease His righteous wrath. 1 Timothy 2.6 says that Christ gave Himself as a ransom for all. John 3.16, God so loved the world. You know, these kind of verses make people furious who, who realize that they cannot justify themselves. And yet, Paul here tells us that this is the motivation of our worship. When we understand that the reason that we worship God on Sunday mornings, and the reason that we seek Him, the reason that we pursue Him, is all because of what Christ Jesus has done. And so, Romans 12 explains to us that God's mercies are what fuel us. 
Paul presents the mercies of God to the mind of believers as the most powerful and potent incitement to worship God. A worship that engulfs and ensues the entire being of believer. Romans 3.23, say it with me again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Amen? We know that. And we, are, we're, we use these scriptures when we preach the gospel and we're reminded of our own sinfulness. But we need to remind ourselves this morning of Romans 3, 24 and 25. That we're justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. You've got to, you've got to memorize those verses. You've got to memorize those verses. Because this... These scriptures, Romans 3, 23 through 25, Romans 5, Romans 8, they point us back to the, the text. They point us back to God's sovereignty over salvation. They point us back to the cross. And what Romans 3, 23 does is when you read it and you recognize you're a sinner is that, that your guilt overwhelms you if God's working. Your guilt overwhelms you and you recognize you're a sinner before a holy God. And it causes you and it ushers you to do, one, to do two things. When you recognize your sinfulness, either you're going to try to fix it yourself, you're going to try to change yourself, you're going to try to make yourself a better person, or it's going to usher you, as the book of Romans does, to the cross, where you, you, you run to it and you, you lay down, you bow down, you cast yourself down before the foot of the cross, and you cry out for mercy. And when you understand that you're a sinner, you don't waltz to the cross. You don't prance to the cross. You haste and you run and you bow down before the cross and you cry out to God for mercy. But here's the blessing. You don't stay at the cross. You don't just stay there day after day, week after week, month after month, crying out, God, have mercy on me. Because God had mercy on you when Christ died for your sins. And so when you come to the cross and you recognize you're a damn sinner on your way to hell and you gaze at Jesus Christ who paid for your sins and you recognize that He died and He rose again, you get up from the cross and you walk away justified. See, every religion in the world, it brings you to some sort of a cross with a Christ that's still on it or it brings you to some sort of idol that will promise you salvation and yet it leaves you destitute. It leaves you helpless and it leaves you hopeless. But when a Christian or when a sinner comes to the cross and he gets saved for the mercies of Christ, he gets up and he, he leaves the presence of the cross to live and love and worship Christ. So guilt drives sinners to the cross. But His mercy, it leads us away. It doesn't mean that we lose sight of the cross. Far be it that we lose sight of the cross. The cross is ever before us. We live our lives around it. It's in the center of our life. But we don't just live the rest of our life before it. Christians' motivation is to please God because of His mercies. It's not to please God because of fear of death. Others apart from Christ say this, If we do not live a good life, we shall be punished. But on the other hand, if we do live a good life, we will accumulate merit and God will be pleased with us. That will lead Him to forgive us our occasional failure and sins and fault and blemishes and it will ensure that we will go to heaven when we die. Yet the Apostle Paul says this is anti-Christian. This is anti-Christ. This is exactly how Paul once lived until he recognized Jesus Christ, what Christ had done for him, what Christ has done for you. And so we worship I love that Cadman's call song. Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song. The joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone from the first to the last has won my affections and bound my soul fast. What an incredible blessing this morning that our motivation to worship Christ is His mercies. It's not the wrath of God. Not for you. When we were trying to teach Lydia to obey us, you know, Amy spends most of her time with Lydia and has a, had a lot more hands-on with her and able to discipline her and, and shepherd her. And 
So a few months ago, we were trying to get her to come to me. So we would sit, you know, sit down, and Amy would sit on one side of the room, and I would sit on the other. And Amy would hold her, and I would tell Liddy to come to me. And she would look at me, and she would turn around and go back to mommy. And so we had to teach her that she has to come to me. Not just she needs to obey, you know, she does. And also for her own safety. You know, when I, I call her, she needs to come to me immediately. Because I'm daddy, and also because it could be for her own good. And so we had to start spanking her. And so what would happen is, you know, we would spank her, and she would cry, and sometimes she wouldn't do it, and then we would spank her again. And she would, she would be so afraid. And she would come to me out of fear. So if, if I said, come here, she didn't come, then I would say, Daddy, I have to spank you. And then she would, she would come. It was shaking because she was afraid until she learned that I was doing it for her good and for her benefit and for her joy. And that likewise is for us as Christians. At first we come to the cross shaking and trembling because of the wrath of God. But we understand God's graciousness and His mercy to us. And we understand that God is not now as Christians looking for us to obey Him out of fear, out of His condemnation. But He's looking at us to obey Him because of His infinite mercies. And it changes the way and the reasons and the whys and the hows of why we serve and why we live and why we come here on Sunday mornings. Don't take that illustration too far. I'm not saying we don't fear God. But I'm saying that His mercy is what motivates us to worship Him. It's not fueled by music. It's not fueled by drums. It's not fueled by Chris Tomlinson. It's not fueled by our worship music. It's fueled by the Gospel. It's fueled by what Jesus Christ has done. So Paul says, I urge you, because, brethren, of the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And so now we understand this motivation. We want to look at the magnitude of worship. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. NIV says, offer there. Present, offer your bodies. The word is a technical term for presenting the victims on offerings of a sacrifice. So both Jews and Gentiles, again, would have been familiar with such terminology. The offering up of a sacrifice. Both would have been familiar as they had taken some animal. The Jews in the Old Testament system of sacrifice would take that animal and they would lay their hands upon it, and they would slit its throat, and they would drain its blood, and they would take that animal, and they would lay it upon the altar. And that animal was a picture of them and their sin. And they would offer that animal up in this bloody ritual. But again, as I explained, we understood that the Greeks especially... Their idea was offering up this propitiatory sacrifice as some sort of way to appease and to get rid of their own sin. And we know that that is impossible. It is impossible for blood of bulls and goats to take away our sin. It is impossible for us to deal away with our own sin. And so here Paul says, because of what Christ has done, you're to offer up your own life. Offer up your own life now as a sacrifice. So we've got to ask ourselves, well, this isn't a propitiatory sacrifice. We've just covered that. So what kind of sacrifice is this? This kind of sacrifice is not for atonement, but it's an offering of thanksgiving in light of the sacrifice of Christ. And so here's what makes Romans 12, verse 1 profound. Your sacrifice is a sacrifice of thanksgiving. A sacrifice of thanksgiving. A sacrifice of joy. A sacrifice of rejoicing, of of thankfulness to God for what He has offered up in Christ Jesus. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. And then Paul continues on. This is your spiritual service of worship. This is your spiritual, spiritual worship. The word translated worship can also be translated as service. But the point is that the word alludes to the work of priests done in the temple as they would offer up sacrifices. 
And so here they are, these priests working in this temple, offering up the grain sacrifice, offering up the sacrifices of thanksgiving, not offering up a bull or a goat. Now what here is incredible is that as Paul uses this terminology and as he points to the priestly sacrifice, as he points back to the Old Testament of that priest who was called out by God, who was a Levite, who was set apart to perform the sacrifices. Paul now does an about face and he turns and he, and he looks at you this morning. And he points the finger at you and says, you're the priest. You're the one who enters into the presence of God and performs the priestly duties. You're the one who enters into the presence of God and offers up the sacrifice. We need to look more at what this sacrifice is. Paul gives three adjectives that describe the state of this living sacrifice. It's living, it's holy, and it's acceptable. If we're going to understand the heart of worship this morning, we need to understand these. First, our sacrifice must be living. Our sacrifice is not an inanimate object or a dead animal, nor is it a sacrifice for sin but that God desires a thank offering, a living sacrifice. And so here's the magnitude of our worship here. A living sacrifice, a perpetual offering up of our very lives to God. A living sacrifice. I take living to me, not only is it a live person, but that the worship is never ending. There's no cease to it. This living sacrifice means that there's no ceasing to it. There's no stopping. You see that? That priestly sacrifice that offered up, he would light that on fire, douse it in some fuel, and that thing would last for a few hours. And after a while, all that fuel that was igniting that fire would be burnt up and there would be nothing left and the fire would go out. And yet Paul here points to this sacrifice that's living. Not only is it us that we're to present, but it's the fact that it can never, by its nature, run out. It's a perpetual sacrifice. And it's perpetual not because of us, but it's perpetual because of who is the fuel of that sacrifice. It's the mercies of God. It's not our own strength. It's, it's not when we're running out of words to speak or running out of strength to serve. But Paul says this sacrifice that we now live for God is perpetual because the, the fuel for, to live this way is absolutely infinite and inexhaustible. The mercies of God as the fuel to worship God cannot run out. It cannot be a candle that runs out of wax. It cannot be a candle that runs out of wick. It cannot be a lantern that runs out of oil. So Paul says this is to be a constant burning. It was interesting, I came across some things in my study. You guys know in World War II, thousands of Jews, millions of Jews were killed. And somehow, they, in memorial to this, they call this the Holocaust. That the original meaning of the word Holocaust means a sacrifice consumed by fire. I find that interesting. We know the Jews were burned, they were cremated. And yet the original terminology for the word Holocaust means a sacrifice consumed by fire. And what Paul is calling for us this morning, he's calling for us, he's calling for you to be a Holocaust, a holy Holocaust. He's calling for you as Christians to be a continual offering consumed by fire, consumed by the mercies of God. Not to run out, not to grow weary, because of the infinite fuel that's provided. And not only is it to be living, but it's also to be holy. And I take this holiness to be holy in consecration. We know holy in purity, or this sense of holy in consecration, which means that it's, a, it's an offering that's set apart for God. When you consecrate something, you, you set it apart for holy use to God. But a life that is holy, H-O-L-Y in consecration, must be holy 
W-H-O-L-L-Y, devoted. There's no, in other words, this holy consecration, this whole offering of ourselves, means that we must be wholly offered up with no distinction between the sacred and the secular. No distinction, no distinctive, no parts of our life and our worship and our offering to God. The Puritans nailed this. The Puritans, maybe you've read the book, Worldly Saints, and they, they go through this, and they, they define, the Puritans had an interesting way of defining their calling. And their, their belief, understanding of calling, wasn't just that the preacher or the pastor was a man called, but they believed that every person, every Christian had a calling. If he was called to be a potter, and he was called to be a builder, and he was called to be a farmer. And the way they understood this, and I love the application of this, the way they understood this was that there could be no distinction between some man who's preaching the word on Sunday and some man who's out tilling his field on Wednesday. But that every office, every calling was to be set apart and done for the glory of God. And I love that because we have such great struggles in the church. Well, this man, he's a professional holy man, and, you know, we just do this on Sundays or whatnot. And yet Paul says that every one of us is to infinitely worship endlessly and endless exhaustion to God because of His mercies. And he says that this sacrifice that we offer is to be wholly consecrated in every area of our life. And the Puritans defined that. Whether it was eating, done to the glory of God. Whether it was drinking, done to the glory of God. Whether it was sex, done to the glory of God. Or sports. I'm not kidding. They, would, they defined all this. Every area of life was to be done in light of God's mercies. No area was to be withheld. No area was to be covered up. But that everything was to be done for the glory of God. And so you know the point here is that you, you can't blow this lamp out. You can't blow this candle out. You've seen those, those birthday cakes with the fake candles and that person's who's trying to blow them out and it never blows out. That's our life. You can't be blown out, Christian. If you run out of strength, praise God. If you run out of, of power, praise God. Because that's not the fuel. That's not the motivation. The motivation is God's mercies. Your whole life is to be set apart. School, work, eating. Nothing that can be done as a Christian must not or cannot be done outside of being done for the glory of God. And thirdly, it must be acceptable. It must be acceptable to God. And I would take this more as to be holy in purity. It's acceptable to God. It's pleasing. It's, it's holy to the Lord. And this really is a call again for holiness. This is why sin as a, as a believer is in, in, in a sense more wicked than sin in an unbeliever. Because as a Christian... You've been saved, you've been sanctified, your sins have been washed. You're no longer without excuse to your ignorance to continue in sin. And now your whole life is to be consumed in worship. And so now evaluate your lives. Having understood that there's to be no separation between sacred and secular, understanding that everything you do in your life is to be offered up to God, evaluate your life. Evaluate the conversations that you have with your roommates in your apartments. Can you have those conversations and then afterwards say, Amen, praise God. Can you, man, I'm humbled, can you come to church after the drive in the car? Can you come to church after, the way, after last night, after this week with your wife or your husband, your spouse, your children? Can you come and say, praise God, we've done everything for the glory of God. Would you sit down and watch Desperate Housewives and close in prayer? Everything that you must do is to be holy. Is your life a pure and holy flame? Is your life a pure and holy flame or is it a toxic chemical fire? Is your life a pure and holy flame or is it a, a toxic chemical fire? You know, you guys, we go camping, you go on the mountains or you go down to the ocean, to the beach, you get the bonfire and you throw the wood on and you pull out the weenies, you pull out the marshmallows and you start roasting. 
And you can sit around that fire, you know, singing songs, and you get a little smoke in your eyes, but it smells good. You go home later, your clothes smell like smoke, and it just reminds you of the good time you had. And you, you can go away from that. You're not going to get sick. It's a good time. But you know, there's another, and this has happened. I don't know if you know what railroad ties that they lay the tracks down on. Railroad ties are soaked in what's called creosote. It's a diesel oil mixture, and they, they use it, they put it in the wood to preserve wood from rot. It's a chemical. And people, in the, people have known that. They take these railroad ties, and they, they light them on fire, and they use it for a fire. And what they don't understand is that creosote is poisonous. And they sit around that fire, and they just soak in this smelly, stinky stuff, and it, makes, it can make you really sick. And the point is that we're just to offer up to God an aroma that's pleasing to Him. If your life this morning, if there's areas of your life that you continue or are hiding from the Lord and living in sin, and that you claim to be a living sacrifice, you're offering up a creosote fire to God, this, this chemical fire to His nostrils. That's unpleasing to Him. Now God is calling us this morning to be those who offer up to Him a sacrifice of purity and holiness. A pure fire that burns with the fuel of God's mercies, not with the fuel of our sin. And I encourage you this morning, as we always do, Sunday after Sunday, day after day, it's this constant, by God's grace, evaluation of our lives, coming to the Word, asking God to sanctify us in His truth, that our fire would burn more pleasing and more holy, more pure to God. Thirdly, as you look at this motivation of why we worship, we want to look at the, the measure of worship. The measure of worship, that is true worship, knows what God's will is. Paul says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed. The Greek tells us that this is a present passive imperative. Let me explain what that means. Present means that it's a constant state that we're supposed to be in of not allowing ourselves to be conformed. A passive means that we're not, a, we're not to allow it to be done to ourselves. Bob hit the ball. He's actively hitting. But Bob was hit by the ball. That's passive. It means the ball acted upon him and Bob took it upon himself. And Paul here is commanding you, this morning, to not be conformed by the world. He's commanding you to not allow the world to act upon you. To not sit back and allow the world to impact your life, to impact your heart, to impact your thinking, to impact your Christianity. Do not be conformed. Do not be changed. Last summer... Czech team was in Czech Republic, and FBC had a team there. And my father-in-law, Ken, he was there, and he was in downtown Prague, and he got his wallet stolen. Right, he lost a lot of money. All right, pickpocketers. Okay, we're there this winter, downtown in Prague again. They stole his wallet again. Okay, he, I mean, had it, you know, in a pocket somewhere. See, he was doing all that he could. He was doing all that he could to, to keep himself not getting ripped off, but he still got ripped off. But you know, wouldn't it be foolish if he just walked around with that wallet sticking out of his back pocket with a lot of money just hanging out? It's just asking. It's just asking for someone just to come up and take his wallet. And Paul here is, is telling us, do whatever you can to make sure that the world is not pouncing upon you. This is defensive Christianity. You ever heard of defensive driving? This is defensive Christianity. Do what you can to keep the world's hands off of your heart and off of your minds. And then he commands us here, do not be transformed. That is, do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I take this as to be the active sense. This is, this is our defense. The best defense is a good offense. Our defensive stance toward the world is to take up an active response 
with the Word of God. Again here, present, passive, imperative. Present, this is a habitual pattern of your life. Passive, you're to allow it to act upon you. It's an imperative. This is a command. The Greek word is actually metamorpho. We get the word metamorphosis. Be transformed. Be metamorphosized by the renewing of your mind. I love it again because it's, it's passive to be acted upon. To be holy, this is alien. Our righteousness is alien righteousness. But it must be forever cultivated, carefully cultivated through a mind willing to be morphed by God. So I find it just a great joy this morning. And I encourage you, you know, what was so emphasized at the conference in some, so many ways was just the simplicity, the simplicity of knowing Christ. The simplicity of worshiping God. And I know from my heart, and maybe for some of you, it's, it's often this struggle where we're, we're looking for some new way, some new spark, some new motivation that would cause us to more vigorously pursue Christ. And yet I think it's all right here this morning. Romans 12, 1 and 2 ushers us back to remember the Gospel. It's this big, broad theme of the Gospel that we just can't forget. We cannot forget and allow our minds to be transformed by the power of the Gospel. I've recognized I struggle in my own life, my own heart, area of maybe legalism. Legalism is simply when you try to please God and your own righteousness. If you're struggling with sin and you find yourself succumbing to temptation, the legalist response is, I need to change, I need to change myself in order to please God. And yet the gospel ushers us and reminds us that we need to look back and remember of what brought us to the cross in the first place. What brought us to the cross in the first place was our own weaknesses, was our own absolute incapability to do anything to change ourselves. But in that sense, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. We don't get up and leave from the cross, and then all of a sudden now we're able to do it all. Yes, we understand that God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness, but who gave it to us? It's God. And so the gospel ushers us not just to be saved by it, but to constantly and perpetually live by it. And we need to come back morning after morning, day after day. Because if we just understood all that there was that entailed the gospel, then we wouldn't need an exhortation in Romans 12, verse 1. We wouldn't need an imperative. We wouldn't need a reminder to go back to the gospel. And yet Paul's point this morning is that it's God's mercy that motivates us to worship Him. It's God's gospel that transforms our minds. It's God's truth. And what's incredible is if is that this is really just the two introductory verses to the rest of 12 through 15, which is all application. Because Paul is going to explain what it means to really practically live as a living sacrifice persevering in trials. How about verse 12? Devoting yourself to prayer. Practicing hospitality. Verse 16, worshiping. Chapter 13, obedience to government. He's going to go through what it means to be a living sacrifice. Plain old, mundane, everyday, hunky-dory living. And yet, men and women, every person in the whole entire world is doing those things. Everybody is helping other people. Everybody is obeying the government. But only Christians do it for Christ. Only Christians do it because of the gospel. Only Christians travel land and sea to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is everything to us this morning. The gospel will be everything to you tomorrow. The gospel will be everything to you in the weeks and the months and the years to come. And so, Paul, to to, to come back, Paul is saying... That you, brothers and sisters, are the priest. 
and that you, brothers and sisters, are the sacrifice, and that you're the temple. And all those things, all those things make up the living sacrifice. Some final exhortations, some final encouragements. Hopefully you're asking yourself, how do I do this? How do I do this? It seems so, so broad. It seems so ethereal. Well, let me answer this way. If you're saved, you're already doing it. If you're saved this morning, this sermon is just it's a reminder. It's an encouragement to your hearts that the reason that you're living the way you're living is because of the gospel. Now, you may forget that sometimes. You may forget that Christ has done it all. You may forget that He is our all in all. You may forget that He is perfect and He's working in you and through you and for you, for His own glory. And so I just simply say, just go back to the cross. Go back to Matthew 27 and, and, and read Jesus on the cross. And then read Romans. Romans, Romans is a commentary of Matthew 27. Romans is a commentary of Christ on the cross. Romans is a commentary of what happens when Jesus Christ is on the cross. And so go back and just refresh your heart of what the gospel is. And so secondly, I just say keep the cross the center of your life. Keep the cross the center of your life. Yesterday I read uh, C.J. Mahaney's book, The Cross-Centered Life. And it's such an encouragement for me to make sure that Christ is the center of what I'm living in, that when I'm stumbling and, and failing, that I'm not seeking to pull myself up with my bootstraps, but that I continue to live in a humble state before the Lord and continue to rejoice in the Gospel. Thirdly, if you're worshiping God in order to try and earn His favor or forgiveness, then you're a closet Jehovah's Witness or you're a Mormon. Or you're a Muslim. You must recognize that not in a million millenniums can you ever do anything to please God in your own righteousness. So if you come Sunday after Sunday and you've still not recognized that there's nothing in your own heart that could ever please God, you need to come to the cross this morning and you need to bow down and you need to worship because of His infinite mercy, not because of your own righteousness. Thirdly, or lastly, evaluate burnout. Evaluate your burnout. Now, this is a great concern for this church. You know, Amy and I came from Spokane, where great church, people are serving and ministering. But there's something about Cornerstone that's different. There's like a higher caliber here. It's more intense. People are, they're like Navy SEAL Christians, okay? You guys are intense, and praise God for your service. Praise God for your ministry. But you know what? First thing is you guys recognize you're very young. I'm young. We're all young. And we have a lot of vigor. And the danger that we're going to face is burnout. And burnout happens when Christians minister and plow ahead in their own strength, not in the strength which God supplies. So if you find yourself waking up in the mornings and you have to somehow motivate yourself and you find yourself grumbling in your heart and you find yourself becoming despondent over ministry and over all the things you're doing. You find yourself being disgruntled because other people are not thankful for your ministry. Then you need to recognize that you're going to stumble and you're going to burn out. Isaiah 40, 30, 31 makes it clear. It says, Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Your serving must be done in the strength in which God supplies. Go back to the gospel. Go back to what motivates and fuels and invigorates our hearts to serve. In 1969, after 20 years of Russian communist oppression... Czech youths began to riot and began a resistance to the Russians. One young Czech man, Jan Palach, decided that he was going to fuel the opposition and encourage his comrades to fight for freedom. So on a cold January day, Jan Palach went to Wenceslas Square, doused himself in fuel, and lit himself on fire. Burned himself alive. 
He burned for maybe 20 minutes. The flames consumed him. A month later, another Czech youth did the same thing. Doused himself, lit himself on fire. The impact of these revolts is quoted by historians as follows. Apart from immediate shock, these suicides didn't have a lasting impact on the political situation in Czechoslovakia. Apart from understanding the gospel, apart from understanding the mercies of Jesus Christ that is to motivate you, you can do nothing. So Christian, dip your wicks in the mercies of God. Be set aflame by the gospel and burn forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the infinite mercy of the gospel of Christ. Your mercies are more than a match for my heart. God, we praise you for the gospel. Praise you for Romans 12. I praise you that our motivation is because of your infinite mercies. Lord, my own heart's burden this morning for the church. I see my own legalism and my own struggles, my own subjectivity, and I see also others who labor in futility, others who labor growing weary. I pray, God, you would help us turn to the mercies of God. Lord, our hearts also just burden for those this morning that are hurting and suffering. And yet, Father, to know that there are so many hurting and suffering and yet have no gospel to turn to. Lord, I pray those who wrestle with sin or those whose lives are impacted just by the reality of sin being in the world, that you would comfort their hearts this morning by the mercies of Christ. And Lord, I know that that's a supernatural thing, that the Spirit of God works through the Word of God. And so I pray that you would comfort your people, that you would comfort the sheep, that you would comfort people here this morning that are hurting, that are weary, that are cast down, that are so burdened by the pain of life there is a sense of hopelessness. And yet the Gospel is for the hopeless. The Gospel is for the hurting. The Gospel is for people who are slaves to sin. The Gospel is for people whose lives are being destroyed by the sin that's in this world. Lord, help us to keep the main thing the main thing. Help us to keep the Gospel the center. Make these people here this morning Gospel-centered, God-exalting people who are fueled by the infinite mercies, the infinite joy that was bought at the cross. That it's not just a past tense event. Lord, we cling to Christ this morning. We thank you so much for your mercies that you have shown towards us. And we we praise you. And all God's people said, Amen.